Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Our read through the Psalms continues with Psalm 63, a Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed, meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. We have another one of our psalms that has some context given, although it's a little vague. David has written this when he was in the wilderness of Judah. The key word there is going to be wilderness. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in his throne room. He didn't really have a palace just yet. His son will build the palace in Jerusalem. But nonetheless, he had a throne as king in his house. And he's not there. This does not seem to be early. That would come from verse 2. David said, I looked upon you in the sanctuary. So those earlier moments where David is living out in the wilderness, fleeing from King Saul who sought to kill him, at that point there's nothing to tell us that David has seen God in his sanctuary. The tabernacle, which was erected in the city of Shiloh, for hundreds of years until David's going to move the ark down to Jerusalem eventually during his reign. So this seems to be in connection to that. David has already become king in that way. The most likely context for us then is that 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 17 coup where Absalom, son of David, takes the throne away from his father. And David flees. So we can't guarantee it, but that seems to be our context for this particular psalm. God, you are my God. Easy enough. But possessive. Not that we possess God in that that kind of a way. But the possessive pronoun, he is my God, not just a distant God, not some God that others might worship, but mine. And this is true for us as the Christian today as well. Jesus is our Savior. 
Or as he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, we pray to our Father. Not a distant God who does not hear us or act, but our God, the one who knows us, the one who created us, the one who has redeemed us by his own most precious blood, my God. And we get to say that too, just as David did. Earnestly I seek after you. My soul thirsts for you. That might remind you of Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord, the Lord provides. And I mean more than daily bread with that. I mean full provision, that is, life and salvation. Because the Lord provides rain to all people. He provides in this creation in various ways. But the one who seeks the Lord, and this is a reference to our faith, we receive all the gifts that Christ gives. It's worth noting that we can only seek the Lord because we already have faith. David's not a man of atheism who is suddenly seeking after God and finding him. David has been described in Scripture as a man after the Lord's own heart. David trusts in God. And so as things are going poorly for him at the moment, he's crying out in prayer to God for help. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Maybe you've been in that kind of a position where you haven't had anything to drink for a day or a couple of days, and you are parched to the point of weakness. The body doesn't want to do it anymore. Uh, dehydration can hospitalize people. I've seen it. I've seen some strange things with dehydration as a pastor working in the care of God's people. David's describing himself in that way. So intense is his longing for God to care for him, provide for him, that his body is about to faint. He's about to pass out because he feels like the Lord is not, has not provided in that moment. But he's going to turn from that in, in the, the psalm, the hymn as well. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So David knows who God is. And even if things may seem not good at the moment, David still knows who God is. He knows God's faithfulness. And that's the next line. Because your steadfast love is better than life. So let me faint. Let me die. God's love is better. God's faithfulness is better. God's life is better. And this does fit into that coup section, by the way. As David is wandering in the wilderness, a man named Shimei will curse him, calling out curses upon him. And one of the servants of David offers to go and kill Shimei. And David's response, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone? Let him curse, for Yahweh has told him to. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me, and Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. David is willing to take whatever happens to him in this life 
and to see it as coming from God, and thus believe that it will work out to his good, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that the Lord works all things to the good of his people, even suffering, even sorrow, even Shimei's curse. David believes the Lord will turn eventually to his good. Your steadfast love is better than life. That is probably the most important family conversation for this text. Is God's love for us better than this life? As Christians, as those filled by the Holy Spirit, I would hope that we would quickly and readily answer that question, yes. But, do we live that? A follow-up family conversation, if we believed this, how might it change how we live? If we believed that God's steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness, his mercy was better than this life, how might it change how we live? How much of our life is squandered chasing after the things of this world? How much of our life is consumed by the stress that we put on ourselves for money, food, shelter, fame, whatever it may be? We may be able to readily answer yes to the question if if God's love is better than life, but we don't live it. We don't take the time to pray. We don't take the time to read God's word. We don't take the time to gather together with the brothers and sisters in Christ in our local congregation. We avoid these things because we're too busy. Because other things end up becoming more important. Here David is on the run. If we have our context correct, if this is the coup of Absalom, He's on the run for his life. He has very little left to him. His own son has rebelled against him and stolen the kingdom. He has some servants that are still with him, some men that are loyal. But all of his wealth, you can imagine, he probably left back at home. Not be easy to take it with you if you're fleeing for your life. He's had it stripped from him, but he recognizes God's love for him is better. And so he's going to praise him anyway. Even in this moment of despair, even in this moment where it seems like he has lost everything, he will bless the Lord as long as he lives. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Those verses started out for me as easy to memorize because I was, I used them almost as a a joke with my confirmation kids when I was giving them memory work a few years ago that I was going to give them not just one verse this week to memorize, but three. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 is two words. 
verse 17 is three words, so it's not that bad. But I'm thankful I have those words of God memorized. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's what David's doing. He's rejoicing always, even though the moment is dark. He's praying without ceasing, even though the moment is dark. And he's giving thanks, even though the moment is dark. We live in a dark world. We live in a place where the world is against us. And it's okay. We can thank God. We can praise the Lord anyway and can continue to do so as long as we live. In your name I will lift up my hands. And that is a reference to prayer. But I do I wonder if it's not a, a contrast point. He's not going to lift up his hand in violence to strike his enemy, but he's going to lift up his hands in prayer. Now, what exactly that looked like, we have this picture in our minds, I think, of prayer from Christian churches that we see today, um, the more contemporary style, hands in the air, sometimes wavings, not always. But if you go to a more liturgical congregation, you may have also seen your pastor raise his hands in a posture of prayer where he is praying in the church service and he puts his arms out at his sides and he lifts them up, palms facing upwards. Uh, this is from the Latin called the orans, O-R-A-N-S, position of prayer. I don't know what David's referring to as he says that he will lift up his hands, what that means in terms of you know, in front of him, beside him, palms up, palms down, fingers to the, I don't know. But I do recognize that this is prayer. Just as Paul will say in 1 Timothy that he wants men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. And I do think that same contrast is there. Rather than in violence, because anger is mentioned in, in the context, rather than in violence, in prayer. And that's what David does here. My soul will be satisfied. As with fat and rich food, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This is Matthew 4. Jesus, when he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness, saying that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 there. So David's recognizing here. His soul is satisfied as with fat and rich food. And yes, he did say fat. I know American culture has for a long time kind of written off fat as being an evil thing in our diets. Most of history would disagree with us on that, that matter. Fat was the good stuff to them. His soul is satisfied. He's been cared for. He's been fed. Even if he is yet faint bodily, he is recognizing that because he has Christ, he has everything, and he will praise him nonetheless. So whether we are living safely in our homes, or if we are in exile, or if we are imprisoned for our faith, we praise the Lord because we are fed and nourished by him. He will meditate on the Lord through the watches of the night. The night is divided into every three hours. So from six to six, six to nine, Nine to midnight, midnight to three, three to six, four nightly watches. It's not to necessarily say David's awake during all of those, but at any moment where he is, 
he's thinking of God and his word and his promises. For you have been my help in the shadow of your wings. So again, the picture of a, a bird caring for its chicks, protection, provision. David sings for joy because he knows that God is with him, for him. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And that's the fighting hand, the arm that you would use to, to draw your sword and strike. So he recognizes that even though things are not good at the moment, God has him. And so it's going to be all right. He clings to the Lord. And this is our faith also, that we cling to God no matter what circumstance we may find ourselves in in this life. Our final paragraph here turns the text a little bit to what David knows about those who seek to harm him, those who want to destroy him. They will die, go down into the depths of the earth. They will die. They will be buried, given over to the sword, so destroyed, God's judgment. They shall be a portion for jackals. Jackals here may not be the best English word. Um, That English word jackals is used in ESV 17 times. 14 of them are going to be a Hebrew word referring to what the Latin classification system would call Canis aureus, which is a wolf-like canine creature. But three of those 17 are a different Hebrew word. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 4, Lamentations chapter 5, verse 18, and then here in Psalm 63. This is, uh, the Hebrew word is shual instead of tain, and the the Latin that this is pointing us to is vulpus, either neloticus or flavicens, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing those Latin words right, but those are the classifications for the red fox or the Turkmenian fox. So a bit of a distinction, still a canine creature, right, but not the same animal, and so that's we're looking at a fox here for this final word of verse 10 that even even foxes would consume these. Foxes aren't, aren't often known as being the most meat-eating of animals, not like a, a wolf would be for the jackal picture here. So maybe that's why the ESV likes the word jackal. Anyway, verse 11, The king shall rejoice in God. The king, David, will rejoice in God. He is faithful to his God no matter what the circumstance. That would be a faithful king. That would be a good king. And most of Israel's kings would not be this, unfortunately. All who swear by him, so by the Lord, exult. They rejoice in God's name because for the mouth of liars will be stopped. Those who seek to destroy, those who seek to harm, those who follow the devil, because Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 that the devil is the father of lies. So if you're a liar, your father is the devil. They'll be stopped. They'll be defeated. Their end has already been decreed. It's only a matter of time. And in the meantime, we trust in the Lord, that he has us. And even if the world kills us, Christ will raise us. Thanks be to God. So let us praise his holy name. Amen. Amen.